Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm one of the editors of the journal Global Summetry. It's my pleasure today to introduce to you Oliver de la Costa Stunkel. He's a professor of international relations at FGV, uh, Guatilo Vargas Foundation in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Oliver and, and his colleagues are uh, joined in an effort to create a new school of international relations at FGV, uh, and I'm sure it will be a great success. Oliver writes extensively on the politics of the rising powers, especially Brazil, but also uh, India and China. He's written a, a number of studies, and his most recent book is by Polity, and it's, it's titled Post-Western World, How Emerging Powers are remaking the global order. My invitation to Oliver in particular was to talk about the uh, recent Summit of the Americas. This is the eighth Summit of the Americas that took place uh, last month in Lima, Peru. Uh, I wanted to discuss the politics of it, but also raise with him the issues of the regional politics, politics around um, Venezuela in particular, and I wanted to examine the politics with him of Brazil and um, Peru and Argentina as well, Colombia. So uh, let's join Oliver now in a discussion about the Summit of the Americas and uh, the regional efforts in Latin America. So uh, welcome, Oliver, to uh, this Summit dialogue um, series. Uh, this is, uh, in fact, episode uh, three, and I'm uh, looking forward to our discussion about the, the Summit of the Americas. Um, so let me take you then uh, to uh, the summit. Um, Oliver, as you know, uh, the first triennial meeting of the summit uh, of the Americas occurred in Miami in 1994. And uh, the question really is, why was this summit brought into being? And what thinking was there in the Clinton administration which led uh, to the creation of the Summit of the Americas? Uh, well, I think the first point is that uh, at this time you had uh, a sense of optimism that shaped the way that policymakers, not only in, in Washington, but also in uh, Latin America, thought about the Americas as a whole. You uh, had uh, a process of democratization uh, in several countries, a consolidation of democratic rule, um, Brazil, for example, not only uh, you had democracy, but you also had uh, a major achievement. Hyperinflation was, was, was uh, uh, overcome. So you really, I think, had several leaders in the region who had also a very good personal connection, which uh, led Clinton and a series of uh, people aware of and knowledgeable, knowledgeable of Latin America to really start thinking about the region in new terms. And I think uh, when you speak to policymakers at the time, it's really quite uh, interesting how there was genuine uh, excitement about the opportunities that uh, more institutionalized cooperation could bring. Uh, and I think it was very much in this sense that the uh, Clinton administration uh, decided to, to organize the summit 
in order to accelerate and, or, and, and, and streamline sort of debates that were going on about the future of the hemisphere. Okay. Um, can you point to or talk about any accomplishments? I mean, uh, we now are talking, uh, the original uh, summit was 1994, so it's been a, a while. And in fact, the, what we're going to look at uh, very quick and very soon, which is the um, uh, most recent summit, but there's been a long span. Can we, can we point to or can you point to uh, singular kinds of accomplishments uh, that the yeah. um, uh, summit of the Americas has been able to create? Well, I mean, a lot of people like to criticize uh, the, the summit of the Americas and say that it uh, didn't really achieve that much, that, you know, uh, there's very little to show when it comes to actual uh, agreements. And it is, of course, true that what really uh, was one of the key goals of this process, which was, uh, you know, a, a, a trade agreement uh, that would, would span the entire hemisphere, uh, did not come to fruition. There was clearly a lot of resistance. It wasn't only anti-American uh, presidents, even Brazil, uh, despite being in principle interested in, uh, you know, increasing Brazil's role in, in the global economy uh, and, and also being open to the idea of free trade, etc. There, there was a lot of concern that uh, this would limit the autonomy of, uh, of countries in Latin America. So there was a bit of a suspicion that this would be too much. Uh, so this did, in, in the end, that has led many analysts to say that the uh, not only the Summit of the Americas in 1994, but also all of the Summit of the Americas uh, have been failures. Now, I, I think that is not true because that was a very ambitious goal. And uh, looking back, I think there was a bit of excessive optimism about uh, the opportunities uh, which existed in the, in the hemisphere at the time. But I think it was a really important process to uh, make sure that heads of state would regularly come together and look at the region uh, and start um, a per and, and establish and, and, and strengthen personal relationships uh, that didn't really exist. That this is seen thing regular. And uh, if you look at the actual outcome uh, of several summits, you could say, well, uh, not much uh, happened. Uh, but the meetings on the sidelines now uh, are regular. They're really important. There is a notion among policymakers that many challenges that uh, governments uh, across the hemisphere face cannot be solved alone. So I think uh, what my perception is, having spoken to policymakers who had a really important role uh, throughout the, the, the past uh, two decades, uh, uh, that you know, even though you didn't have big agreements, uh, a lot was uh, a lot got done on the sidelines, and uh, you could point, for example, to to the U.S. decision uh, under Obama to uh, you know to improve ties with Cuba, which could be seen as very much the consequence of a perception by the Obama administration, uh, for example, uh, during the Colombia summit in 2012, that this was really affecting. Uh, uh, you know, relationships across the hemisphere and that, you know, th th there was a lot of pressure in the region that the United States would initiate a process of uh, improving ties to Cuba. So so I think it's, it's, it's not very satisfying if you want to look for sort of big announcements that really transform politics. But I think if you have, uh, you, you know, if you have the hemisphere and you, uh, it's really 
tremendously important now that if you're a regular meeting among heads of state uh, to make sure that uh, you can, for example, anticipate uh, problems that are coming up and, and diffuse them before they actually turn into, into major problems. So <clears throat> from what you're telling us, uh, the, the leadership meetings, even if it's not in the in the main sessions, but on the margins can be helpful to some of the relationships uh, in the Western Hemisphere. But let me take you then to the most recent um, summit, which is, of course, the one in Lima last month. And notably, this is the eighth summit, notably, uh, President Trump did not attend the summit. He is the first American president not to have attended one of the summit of uh, a summit of the Americas. In fact, at the end of the day, and pa partly I presume in reaction to Trump not attending, only 17 of 35 heads of state actually uh, attended in Lima. So, what does this suggest about the health? Uh, vibrancy of the Summit of the Americas? Well, it's obviously uh, a bad sign. I mean, a lot of um, diplomats were, were privately relieved that, you know, Trump wasn't coming and that, you know, he that he wouldn't use uh, the summit as a platform for electoral politics, talk, you know, adopt a anti-immigrant stance. But of course, it's a bad, it's, it's, it's negative. And uh, if you don't have the U.S. president, it really is not the same, and uh, I, I completely agree with you. I think that uh, several <clears throat> several presidents from the region decided not to be there uh, because they wanted to engage with uh, with the new U.S. president. Uh, that didn't happen. I think uh, that uh, the summit suffered as a consequence. Uh, a lot of presidents didn't show up. Um, <clears throat> I think rather than uh, questioning the, uh, the, well, the utility of the summit, uh, we should uh, recognize that uh, the way the summit happened points to uh, a lot of internal issues within countries. It points to the fact that our debate about the future of the hemisphere uh, is not uh, sufficiently developed and that there is perhaps not a full understanding among political leadership in several countries uh, that this is really a crucial uh, level of engagement. Uh, and I think uh, many times due to perhaps also a distance between societies uh, uh, in the Western Hemisphere, uh, sometimes people are unaware of the fact that you can't really, uh, as I said, you know, address many issues uh, without cooperating with neighboring countries. So it is, of course, very worrying. And uh, I think in retrospect, uh, it would have been better to postpone the summit because uh, you have lame duck presidents in Brazil, in Mexico. Uh, you had a lame duck president participating from uh, Paraguay. Uh, you have elections coming up in Colombia. So these presidents, of course, they, they lack uh, the energy and also the legitimacy to, uh, to really help us think about the future of the region. On top of that, you had Donald Trump, and you know, who has got a very ambiguous relationship uh, to to the rest of uh, of the hemisphere, a lot of criticism uh, about many of his remarks, and uh, sense that the 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 U.S. government lacks a coherent policy. Uh, so I think that um, that's that all helps us explain why the summit uh, was uh, uh, was really not well attended and really produced very few results. But I think it should uh, be used as a moment for us to really 
think hard and make sure that the next summit is seen as a, a priority uh, for governments across the region. Well, and then thinking about that, I did uh, note uh, that uh, Vice President Pence, who attended in uh, stead of uh, President Trump, did um, uh, suggest that the United States would like to host the next summit, which is in 2021. Uh, do you believe this is a signal, possibly, from this administration, or more uh, that you know that uh, they recognize some of the negative vibrations coming from the current summit, uh, and uh, hoping to correct for that, or what do you think? Well, it has come a bit of a surprise. So I, I've spoken to several uh, uh, diplomats from different uh, countries across Latin America about this proposal. There was a bit of a you know, a couple said like, huh, this is interesting. I mean, this doesn't really uh, align well with the perceptions that we've had so far about, you know, this government and their perceived lack of interest. Um, so, so I think, I mean, this is, this is an interesting signal. Uh, of course, um, uh, I think, you know, some have criticized this and said, you know, what, why are you doing, organizing a summit after having done so little? And I think there's, it's really quite symbolic of how um, there's uncertainty about what the United States uh, wants to do in the region after the departure of uh, Tom Shannon as Assistant uh, uh, Secretary of State for the Western Hemisphere. Uh, you know, the, a lot of uncertainty of, of, of uh, what uh, Washington seeks to accomplish. Um, now, in, in that sense, I think it, uh, it could be a positive sign because uh, people uh, across Latin America may be critical of the government in Washington, but that, that doesn't mean that there's no need to cooperate. I think there's there, there continues to be a great urgency to uh, look at things like you know migration, organized crime, uh, climate change. I mean, there's so many issues that require uh, a concerted regional effort uh, that you know perhaps this may be a, a, a good sign. But I think what's really more important is that there's a broader debate amongst also civil society and acad academia uh, across the region of what the, the, the region would like to accomplish, what are the key challenges, and how to select the topics uh, well ahead of the summit to make sure that this is a, a productive meeting. Well, uh, let me take you to then to <clears throat> the uh, statement that emerged from the meeting. This was the so-called Lima Commitment and it's titled uh, Democratic Governance Against Corruption. Is there any sense uh, that you have of um, regional collaboration with respect to what appeared to be the key issues in this commitment, particularly, uh, you know, kind of anti-corruption uh, uh, initiatives, uh, the promotion of democracy. I mean, is there any sense that notwithstanding leaders kind of many didn't attend, that there is a kind of concerted regional attention uh, to these problems of democratic governance and anti-corruption? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a clear sense among, uh, particularly in Latin America, uh, among political elites that corruption uh, mobilizes the voters 
there is a broad rejection in many countries of not only particular candidates, but the entire political class uh, that is certainly uh, potentially destabilizing, uh, makes elections more uh, unpredictable, uh, opens the door to uh, more radical outsiders. Um, it is entirely unclear to what extent that is sustainable. Uh, there is uh, what is entirely overlooked, I think, in the debate is that uh, worries about corruption and protests against corruption, they tend to coincide with low economic growth. We now have low economic growth. We will have low economic growth in Latin America for uh, uh, another couple of years, probably because of rising U.S. interest rates, which is bad for for mm -hmm. uh, growth in Latin America. We have relatively low commodity prices, which are not going to come back to the 2011 peak anytime soon. So, uh, so you know, it's, I think for some years still, we will have uh, a low tolerance uh, with corruption. I'm not so sure if it's a sustainable thing because once growth increases again, people tend to care less uh, about these topics. But for now, it really matters. So I think the choice is positive. Uh, cooperation is taking place on some levels. It remains to be seen to what extent the uh, commitment uh, actually has an impact. But there's there's some encouraging signals, for example, where prosecutors are uh, sharing information in a more systematic way, where governments are starting to tackle these things uh, together. Uh, a lot of the corruption scandals that we uh, that we have seen in the past involve uh, tra involve transnational crime. It's it's uh, it's for example Brazilian construction firms. Uh, uh, um, uh, financing illegally candidates uh, in other countries such as Peru, Venezuela, uh, you know, so th these are things that these, that countries need to work on together. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think there's some uh, encouraging signs. Much more needs to be done. I think um, law schools, for example, need to work together across the region in order to uh, to train future prosecutors, train them together, establish networks, uh, establish also networks. Uh, between investigative journalists across the region who can share data, who can, uh, you know, uh, work together to piece together certain issues. There's just there's still yet very little uh, cooperation. Uh, and there need to be ways also to protect these investigative journalists across the region where freedom of expression sometimes and also protection that uh, journalists enjoy differs tremendously. Um, and, of course, then there's the, 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 the last thing is that several of the governments uh, that are in power are deeply implicated in ongoing corruption investigation. There's a broad consensus uh, in Brazil that the current government is uh, is, is certainly involved uh, in corrupt practices. That uh, uh, a lot of the politicians that are seeking re-election primarily do so to protect themselves against uh, uh, corruption investigations. Uh, so that, of course, to some extent reduces perhaps legitimacy if, if we had a, a a new recently empowered uh government in brazil uh that is perceived to be clean that of course would have given the the, the summit declaration uh more legitimacy um so i think we we shouldn't be overly optimistic but i think it it, it certainly shouldn't be discarded as uh as mere rhetoric uh i think it really points into the right direction that this is a topic that only a couple of years ago was seen as something entirely domestic. And now there's a growing notion uh, that there's no way to overcome this uh, unless there is uh, concerted and, and systematic 
cooperation on a regional level. Well, that's very interesting. And let me explore a little bit more about the, the nature of politics in Brazil, but also the transnational aspect. My understanding is that, you know, the Brazilian corporations uh, and the corruption generated helped to break down ultimately uh, the, the previous president of Peru. Uh, and uh, more generally, I mean, what is the state of, uh, of Brazilian uh, politics when you have the, the previous um, president, who was in many respects quite popular, nevertheless uh, identified for corruption and put in prison, uh, in fact, uh, and um, the current government, of course, uh, skeptical, many people are quite skeptical about uh, this current government. So what is the, what's the state here of uh, politics in at least Brazil? Well, uh, there, there's no doubt that the uh, current investigations, uh, uh, corruption investigations have upended uh, or have really tremendously changed the dynamic, uh, the political dynamic and have added uh, an element of uncertainty, which makes it very tricky now to uh, to to predict what uh, hap- what, you, what will happen precisely because we never know, uh, you know, how long the corruption investigations can survive. There's certainly uh, a power game here going on where the current government is is trying uh, to limit the actions of uh, of the judiciary, is trying to influence the judiciary. Uh, there is a lot of vested interests that are that are now th- that is now threatened uh, that seek to uh, uh, seek to reduce the impact of the Lava Jato, of the car wash investigations, as it's uh, called. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it's far from oh uh, I think that it, it's it, it's far from clear uh, for how long this will continue. Uh, I think there's a tremendous risk that uh, the established political class, which uh, prefers to continue uh, with politics as usual, uh, will prevail. Uh, and I think a lot will depend on uh, the election result in October, uh, uh, to what extent uh, this can be used as a renewal. A lot of uh, old school politicians are seeking to present themselves as a novelty. Uh, and in fact, because of the p- peculiar nature and the necessity of uh, deal making, which is uh, seen as uh, dirty and sort of, you know, very difficult by non-politicians. Uh, there was a lot of hope for outsiders to join the race, and as it seems now, they all have pulled out. Um, uh-huh. So we will see probably a race between, uh, uh, you know, p- professional politicians who have been in the game for for many years. But what's really crucial is how uh, what the composition of Congress will be, uh, and that will have a regional impact too, because uh, if you have uh, a new government that protects. Uh, the uh, investigation, it's really quite likely that we'll have new revelations, not only in Brazil, but also across the region. And that mm-hmm. will endanger then uh, established figures elsewhere too. Uh, it's really quite notable of how little has happened yet in Argentina, considering Brazil's very strong presence there. I think my expectation is that this could uh, still impact both the last and potentially the current government as well. Uh, so this is a, a factor that will continue to generate uncertainty. Uh, but again, it's uh, it's unfortunately, I think many of the international uh, analyses are too rosy uh, uh, who believe uh, that, that, that sort of imply that 
Brazil's judiciary is entirely independent and that's protected. Uh, there's a lot of people uh, seeking to limit uh, what the judiciary is doing right now. Uh, but it's certainly whatever happens in Brazil will also have a huge impact, I think, across Latin America. It's my understanding, you can correct me, of course, that the, the current leading candidate, a former military uh, officer, um, tends to be seen as uh, significantly populist. I mean, what's the prospect of an election of such a figure having on Brazilian politics, at least in the short term? Uh, well, it's uh, it, it certainly is something that uh, generates uh, additional uncertainty. Now we have a very fragmented field of candidates. Certainly, uh, this candidate is leading. I think a lot can happen still. Uh, the actual campaign starts two months before, but um, uh, nobody would deny that the mere presence of Bolsonaro, the candidate you're referring to, uh, in the second round generates uh, significant uh, fear and uncertainty uh, because, uh, you know, this is somebody who's sort of partly inspired at Duterte in the Philippines, in uh, Trump uh, in the United States, uh, somebody who's, who lacks sort of the basic understanding of, uh, of, of economics uh, and of uh, international affairs in general, seeks to uh, propose fairly simplistic or populist proposals uh, when it comes to dealing with what's perhaps the biggest challenge, uh, policy challenge in Brazil today, which is uh, violence, this extremely uh, high degrees of, of, of violence within the country, uh, and the proposals that this candidate espouses are, uh, you know, tend to uh, to exacerbate uh, this uh, problem in, in Brazil. The, the big question, I think, is to what extent this is a threat, uh, not to good policies, but to uh, democratic institutions themselves, I think, uh, uh, without seeking to, <clears throat> without overestimating or exaggerating Brazil's uh, role in uh, in Latin America, it does represent 50% of the territory GDP and population of South America, and you can't really uh, have effective cooperation uh, across the region if you don't have Brazil at least playing a constructive role. I think what we have seen in history is that prior to 1995, when Brazil uh, managed to overcome hyperinflation. There was really no serious uh, regional project because you just Brazil was too worried about sort of internal issues to make any or to, to articulate any systematic way of thinking about the region. Uh, now, uh, a president who uh, poses a direct threat to uh, to institutions, of course, would be a huge step back not only for Brazilian democracy but also for the way we think about uh, regional dynamics uh, in the future. Uh, uh, the, the candidate has recently uh, tried to sort of adopt a more pro-market uh, liberal rhetoric, which is essentially uh, an attempt to build an alliance, which you always need in Brazil, between different parts of, uh, of voters, uh, of society. So uh, mostly uh, a, a population uh, that, uh, you know, is... is Interested or is uh, is uh, agrees to to more sort of a heavy-handed uh, approach uh, mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to uh, dealing with uh, with uh, uh, violence, but also sort of a anti-gay, anti-human rights kind of rhetoric. And on the other hand, a pro-market rhetoric that may bring the financial sector on board. This could be a, vi a 
Eibel Alliance. Uh, happen, it depends a lot on who else uh, will be able to uh, position him or herself over the next months. But I think the, the key question is to what extent are institutions capable of resisting these disruptive candidates? And I would say that uh, paradoxically, uh, the example of the United States is quite in- encouraging, where despite having a president who is very different and who, who is disruptive, uh, a lot of the institutions continue functioning. Uh, and even though I think institutions are not as strong as in the United States, uh, I think that um, th- that I'm not as worried as, as for example, uh, as, as you you know about the situation in Venezuela, where sort of a disruptive president was able to actually uh, disable uh, checks and balances over the past uh, 15, 20 years, and has essentially. Uh, destroyed a democratic system. I think that would not be possible in Brazil. Uh, so is it something I worry about? Certainly, but it's not something I think that is uh, so threatening that it could threaten democracy in Brazil itself. Okay. But, so let's turn back, uh, if only, well, let's turn back uh, to look at uh, Venezuela. Clearly, uh, you, you raised it, but um, it was certainly a central question feature of the uh, summit itself, Um, the Peruvian, the president, previous Peruvian president, had disinvited uh, Nicolas Maduro. I mean, it's clearly Venezuela is in the midst of a significant crisis. Uh, Maduro himself threatened to come to the summit before he turned around and said that he had no interest in in being there. So, First of all, what, what is the state of politics in Venezuela? But secondly, um, how, how does that, you know, the, the, it, there does not appear to be a, any regional response to the question of the dismantling of, in quotes, the dismantling of democracy in Venezuela at all. Right, yeah. I think a very tricky situation in, in Brazil, a big debate, of course, also across Brazil, uh, whether uh, you know is, is Venezuela in a, a dictatorship uh, or not, there was a big debate in newspapers across Latin America of how to uh, refer to Maduro. And uh, in Folha de São Paulo, for example, one of the major Brazilian newspapers, one uh, when uh, when Maduro um, uh, you know uh, sidelined the uh, parliament, Brazil, uh, the uh, Venezuela's parliament, uh, mm-hmm. there was an announcement in the newspaper that said, "We will from now on." refer to uh, Maduro as a dictator. And I thought there was quite a, a lot of, you know, other newspapers said, you know, we disagree, it's a democracy in crisis. I mean, all these kind of terms are sometimes, of course, they're simplistic because it's hard to say, you know, is this a democracy in crisis? Is it a dictatorship? It's certainly we're not, uh, you know, there's no free and fair elections taking place uh, uh, any any longer. There's a lot of doubt to what extent a uh, the electoral process is the way to overcome this uh, this crisis at this stage. Um, uh-huh. At the same time, I think you still have several of the trappings of uh, electoral democracy. So it's not it's not a Cuba. It's sort of different. It's it's very hard to categorize. I think, and uh, Venezuela has been tremendously successful uh, over the past, I would say, ten years of taking very little steps, which are uh, very aware of that the fact that big steps could generate a backlash in the region, has really skillfully operated the region for several years, has been capable of, with uh, oil money, of, of uh, 
uh, of obtaining diplomatic protection and support for quite some time. Uh, the Brazilian government, uh, I believe, has uh, made a mistake of, uh, of eyeing particularly the, the business interests uh, of its companies that were operating in Venezuela for quite some time, uh, so has provided actual protection to uh, the government at, at a point when it was fairly clear that uh, Venezuela would not only at some point uh, cease to be a democracy, but also uh, collapse economically. Right? You have these two cases. I think there's a lot of criticism now that Lula in particular uh, could have uh, you know, uh, been firmer uh, when it came to uh, economic policies, which were clearly irresponsible. I mean, uh, with an oil price well above U uh, 100 US dollars a barrel, uh, Venezuela accumulated a deficit. Uh, now that is not sustainable because no, everybody mm -hmm. knew that the oil price would uh, would come down at some point. Uh, now, what uh, what can the region do? What will the region do? Uh, I think that because of a lack of consensus, uh, there is really not much that uh, we can expect the region to do. Uh, Bolivia, Uruguay, and uh, several smaller. Central American countries such as Nicaragua, Cuba, of course, uh, several Caribbean countries that have received uh, economic help in the past uh, cannot be expected to uh, make a move. So the OAS is basically powerless uh, despite a very activist uh, secretary general uh, who's really taken a stance there and has really uh, reinvigorated the, the institution. But it really, in the end, depends on how countries uh, vote. Uh, so I, I don't think we can see the OS doing much. Mercosur has suspended Venezuela, which is much more a symbolic move because Venezuela didn't really ever join Venezuela, uh, uh, Mercosur for economic reasons, much more political reasons. And UNASUR has basically break, fallen apart uh, as a consequence of the lack of consensus. Uh, several countries, including Brazil, have uh, ceased to participate in UNASUR. Um, so Describe it's really UNISOR to us, uh, Oliver. Well, it's a it's a an institution that was uh, that includes all countries of of uh, South America, uh, mm -hmm. which was uh, uh, created uh, under uh, Lula, and and I, a lot of people say then was really seized upon uh, again quite skillfully by the Venezuelan government, uh, which soon gave it a bit of a political edge, uh, mm -hmm. which I think uh, was different from the initial. Uh, focus uh, and motivation to create this institution, which was to overcome uh, barriers between countries and promote regional integration. So right. the uh, so the uh, you know looking uh, what's going to happen. I think you have two countries and uh, well above all Colombia, which is really paying a tremendously high price now. I mean it's got uh, more than half a million uh, between half a million one million uh, Venezuelan migrants, economic refugees uh, in the country. You've got about 50,000 in Brazil, growing numbers in uh, Argentina, Chile, United States, and Spain, uh, a humanitarian catastrophe, uh, people uh, fleeing because of a lack of access to medicine and, and food. Um, but paradoxically, the case of Venezuela uh, shows that uh, if, again, if you have a, a relatively large economy uh, like uh, Venezuela and uh, a, a region where several countries face domestic tensions uh, and crises, and as is the case of uh, uh, of Brazil, and now unfortunately also Argentina, there's really only that much 
that the region and and and, and regional organizations can do. Uh, and in, in a way, it's a very depressing uh, uh, situation because there's really been so much optimism. I mean, since the early 1990s, you had a, a whole range of commitments and agreements and rules and norms uh, to uh, lock in uh, uh, progress uh, the, uh, and achievements in the realm of democracy. Um, but now I think there's very little that countries can do because you have, and this is also new, and I think to some extent, this is a, uh, this, you know, this points to what the world will look like in the future. The four economically most uh, influential countries and politically also influential countries in Venezuela are not, not from South America. I would say you have the most influential country being China, uh, the United States, then Russia and Cuba. Uh, so what the region can do is very limited. I, I can't see China or Russia ceasing to support the current government. Uh, I also unfortunately think that a uh, an oil embargo, as is being discussed, would be uh, would have negative consequences and could even uh, be good for the current government. Uh, so most unfortunately, uh, I think that uh, anything that the the region will do will be palliative, uh, will perhaps uh, force the government to provide more humanitarian aid. Even though a lot of people say that paradoxically this will help the government because they will of course distribute this. Uh, not evenly, but you know, sell part of the uh, medicine and in, 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 in that way, paradoxically, increase the benefits to those who still uh, support the regime. Well, that's interesting. And let me let me just uh, ask one follow up on that. All right, so you it would appear difficult for um, the region to provide humanitarian support uh, in the country, but. It's surprising, at least uh, as I look at it, that there seems to be no real capacity to provide support um, uh, outside of, you know, in in Colombia or in Brazil, where the economic refugees, uh, there are many of them, have kind of left Venezuela, uh, hunger or, or the politics or whatever. So... Uh, is there uh, isn't that a surprise to you that they haven't taken at least those uh, humanitarian steps? Well, um, I think uh, uh, the the uh, particularly the Brazilian and Colombian government has actually uh, done quite a lot. I mean, there's uh, in both cases uh, the regions that are most affected are regions that are not fully well not as developed as other parts of, of the country and particularly in the case of Brazil this is a very hard to reach far away uh, state of Venezuela, of Brazil which uh, many Brazilians probably couldn't find on the map so this is something that doesn't um, uh, you know this, this is this is not something that's sort of present in the public uh, discourse yet even though the the arrival of Venezuelans is certainly Increase the uh, conscience of uh, the, you know, the, the the awareness that this something is going on. We must do something. As a consequence, of course, you've had nationalist candidates who sort of say, you know, this is the Venezuelan invasion. We need to close the border. And even fairly sensible politicians have actually piggybacked on that, uh, not recognizing that closing the border uh, is, uh, is is not only uh, not viable, but it's also the, absolutely the wrong policy uh, uh, it, it's it's inhumane I think there's considering that Brazil has a 200 million uh, inhabitants the arrival of 50,000 Venezuelans is definitely 
uh, doable. I think there's uh, an absorptive capacity uh, that you sure. have in Brazil, which is far larger. Now, uh, the, the government must clearly do more. Uh, and I think if there's one lesson we can learn from the Syrian crisis, and we're looking there at numbers which are far larger, is right. that the key to dealing with this also from a political point of view is an even distribution across the country to avoid uh, this notion, you know, that there's or these images of, of, of thousands of people sort of huddled in one place, which is very uh, easy to sort of utilize by nationalist candidates to say, look, this is what the entire country will will soon look like. Uh, and I think, um, uh, to, to some extent, the arrival of Haitians, of Syrians in Brazil has really worked quite well. Uh, I'm, I think this is something that uh, both Colombia and Brazil and Argentina uh, can deal with. Mm-hmm. Uh, what What is, though, uh, I think a point of concern is that uh, there is no solution in sight at some point, uh, you may have uh, an internal coup in Venezuela. Uh, somebody in the military may take over. The problem is that even if Maduro wanted to uh, reform the economic system, he couldn't do that because uh, the, particularly the armed forces uh, benefit tremendously from his, uh, his sort of current policies of providing uh, direct access to scarce goods, which allows the military, of course, to sell that off to, uh, to black market prices, uh, mm-hmm. which are... Uh, which, you know, uh, uh, create a lot of political and economic power to those groups. Uh, so I think the only solution would be if you had kind of a, a, a split in the armed forces. I can't see that happen yet. So basically the bottom line is we will have, my expectation is that uh, this will go on for quite some time. There's no credible sign that uh, the oil supply uh, will seize immediately, could seize in three to six or uh, nine months. Um, or two years or, or three years uh, and uh, during that time we'll have a, um, a refugee crisis and a humanitarian uh, catastrophe that um, that I think the Americas have not seen in uh, decades and I think that in as a whole is um, is testament to the tremendous regional failure uh, of, of you know allowing this to happen uh, mm-hmm. even though so many people, uh, for so many years, pointed out that this was uh, this was uh, would not end well, uh, and I think um, whoever uh, takes over in Brazil or Mexico or Colombia, and even future presidents, uh, will have to uh, prioritize dealing first with the refugee crisis at some stage in the future with uh, the uh, reconstruction of, of Venezuela. Uh, one uh, kind of add-on to, to the Venezuela question and more general, um, the role of China now, obviously in Venezuela, maybe not so obviously, uh, but more generally China in, in Latin America. What is the role that China is playing here? Well, I think this is perhaps the most uh, underappreciated topic uh, of all in Latin America nowadays. I think uh, a region that uh, has had a very ambiguous but very intense relationship uh, with the United States uh, uh, for for more than, for almost two centuries. Um, you know, we have, uh, we'll have, we'll have uh, in, in uh, five years from now, we'll have uh, the uh, 200 years of the Monroe Doctrine. I mean, this will be a very interesting moment uh, uh, so we've had for 200 years this, uh, you know, that Latin Americans have lived 
uh, I wouldn't say in the shade of, but but certainly I have lived in a in an active, ongoing uh, uh, relationship that uh, that's pre, uh, very asymmetrical, that's shaped by the uh, suspicion and also the the worry of sort of a growing role in uh, of the United States uh, mm-hmm. in Latin America, um, and I think that uh, those pro and, uh, and, and and anti-Americans both in Latin America tend to overestimate the role that the United States today's, today plays in Latin America. Um, uh, there's still, I think, a sense that the United States has an active interest in Latin America, which is no longer the case, uh, because clearly in Washington, uh, policymakers face uh, many uh, other challenges. Uh, Latin America is no longer and has for a long time not being, uh, been the priority. Um, and I think China has been quite able to um, benefit from this dynamic uh, of this under-the-radar approach. Uh, the general public across Latin America <clears throat> is unaware of China's role, <clears throat> even though that in many uh, economies, uh, including Peru, Chile, and Brazil, uh, China is already the most important trading partner. It is becoming a tremendously important investor, a lender. Uh, uh, recently, uh, China Chinese companies acquired a third of Brazil's electricity sector, and this didn't make the headline news. I mean, this wasn't really a topic that was discussed. So I think there's an, a, a lack of uh, strategic debate in Latin America about what this means uh, and how to um, manage well this growing dependency. Uh, but all I can say is that, uh, to my mind, uh, I think the, the Chinese are doing this very well, I think understand very well that uh, they, they are clearly sort of engaging in a more neutral, sort of non-intervening way. Now, in the case of uh, Venezuela, that has uh, shown that there's a, there's a downside to this. I think China could have easily asked uh, Venezuela to adopt a more fiscally responsible strategy, uh, and it uh, is not very keen to assume a responsibility in the situation, and I've recently been to Beijing where policymakers directly sort of reject any kind of suggestion that they could either have a role in the past in this or have any responsibility in this or play any role in a future mediation process that would help Venezuelans overcome the internal divisions. So, I mean, are are you suggesting then that the so-called liberal order uh, is dying in, in, in Latin America and is being replaced by uh, something else, uh, in, in particular with, with the strong influence of China uh, on, on its trade policy, on its investment policy? Well, uh, we had, it's quite interesting, we had a, a speaker uh, at uh, the Getulio Vargas Foundation in Sao Paulo uh, a couple of months back, uh, who was presenting a report uh, in, uh, from uh, written in Europe about the uh, the so-called uh, authoritarian advance and a report that discusses how Europe should lead with uh, the growth of China and what this means for free speech and you know uh, liberal order, as you say. And it was really fascinating because uh, so he gave this big presentation and. Um, he clearly, um, I think the the audience clearly wasn't so moved by that in a sense that, you know, there wasn't a sense of loss that you may see in Europe or other parts of the world 
uh, where people ask, now what? You know, how are we going to deal with uh, the uh, retreat of the United States? To what extent uh, yep. can the liberal order survive? And to what extent is it worth saving? You know, and, and, and I think it was quite interesting that uh, one of the uh, one person in the audience said, you know, uh, to the speaker, she said, you know, to uh, for, for in Latin America, the liberal order didn't really feel that liberal at all. Uh, you know, there's a there was kind of a hard edge to it, and uh, and there was a lot of criticism when recently the Economist, uh, China was on the cover, uh, uh, using so-called sharp power. Right, this is a term that. Uh, means to sort of uh, to contrast the U.S. soft power approach, and a lot of people in America said, "Well, uh, you know, that may be true for Europe, uh, which has um, benefited tremendously, but in Latin America, you won't have that many people standing up and saying, you know, China, please uh, make sure that you don't, you know, touch our our, our liberal order, uh, uh, because the U.S. is seen in such an ambiguous way that even though there is." Uh, a lot of evidence that suggests that Latin American countries have benefited from the liberal economic uh, and political order that was sustained by the United States. There's this is mixed with a lot of criticism about uh, you know interventions in the past, about violations of rules and norms in particular instances uh, that you don't really have a group in Latin America except for Colombia has been traditionally close to Latin America. Of people who sort of look at China and say, "I think this is problematic," uh, uh, and I think that in itself is is, is a problem because uh, th- there is sort of I think no broad public debate about you know what are the possibilities uh, of China engaging more in Latin America, but also what are the risks. I mean, the debates about you know uh, economic freedom. I mean, what happens if China finances a Confucius Institute? And what does that mean for faculty uh, that write about China at that very university? Uh, you know, these kinds of debates haven't at all come up, and uh, and I think they are important. They should come up, but they probably won't come up in the context of future of liberal order, which seen from Latin America isn't really a thing, uh, and, and people can't really identify with that in the same way that readers in Europe sort of look at John Eikenberry's work and sort of say, well, I recognize this because we have benefited tremendously from global order. This is something I'd like to preserve. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that partially explains why you don't really have a wave of protest or uh, worries in any way uh, about what the rise of China means for Latin America. And, and fair enough, but, and, and you know, kind of the last part of that uh, of this examination even uh, the, the enormous difficulties in Venezuela don't give rise then to um, um, rethinking uh, you know where Latin America is politically and or with respect to the political economy <clears throat> well that's a really interesting question um, but I don't think t- that uh, there has been yet a, con- I don't think the public has yet connected sort of the rise of China to the situation in Venezuela. And I think also um, it's, I mean, I think it would perhaps be an ad- exaggeration to say that mm. uh, the crisis in, in Venezuela is a sign of what's to come. I mean, it is, of course, true that, uh, you know, that China has to some extent a responsibility there. Uh, but 
I think China, and this is, is quite interesting, uh, China, I wouldn't say is promoting bad governance. I think it's just neutral. And right. uh, if, if, if a country like Venezuela is, you know, has uh, uh, you know, a, a viable and, and, and a positive uh, policy, economic policy, then China will uh, probably seek to undermine. But it's also doing nothing to undermine sort of the, or, 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 or stop the uh, current government's uh, uh, terrible policies. Um, so, and, and I think China is so far, as, in, as incredible as it sounds, is uh, winning the, the war of narratives uh, uh, because I think also the current rhetoric of, of, of the U.S. government doesn't help in a sense where a lot of people, uh, you, you know, you ask, so what do you know about Xi Jinping? And people say, isn't that the guy who's defending uh, globalization, right? I mean, it's quite interesting uh, that, you know, th- that the notion that, you know, China isn't perhaps the ideal defender of, you know, a capitalism that is perhaps it's de- describing as a market economy isn't entirely uh, uh, adequate. I mean, that has that's not a real debate yet in uh, Latin America. And that may be partly so because um, because comparing it to this long memory of interventionist policies and a, and, a, and, a, and a profound worry in our Argentina that sort of the IMF may yet again sort of impose its conditionalities with negative impact. On social right. policy, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and then you have China, which is completely hands off, uh, yeah. which would never folk i mean, never ever uh, comment on any kind of internal issues. Then I think this may, at first glance, I think to many people in Latin America, despite all the difficulties that engaging with China implies, and despite the I think very important questions that aren't being asked about what that means for uh, Latin America's place in the world in the long term, may seem sort of a uh, quite attractive, uh, you know that uh, that China is, is sort of uh, is present, but then again, it doesn't at all seek to impose itself. Also culturally, you know, uh, China is now tremendously important, but nobody in Brazil. I mean, very few people in Brazil have any clue or any idea of Chinese culture, Chinese uh, music, or anything. So it, it it's it's kind of invisible in that sense. And uh, for a region that has again this very intense and and an ambiguous relationship to the United States, uh, that, that is actually quite a smart strategy. Well, I mean, it's fascinating, uh, Oliver, that the, you know, in a way, it's, uh, the past is, is now in the, you know, kind of come back into the present and possibly the future in terms of, you know, as you describe it, the ambiguous role that the United States has played or perceived to be, have played uh, by many in Latin America, that seems to be the dominant, still the dominant narrative. Yeah, and again, I, I think um, a lot of this is, is really narrative, and I think uh, uh, there is perhaps uh, there were sort of three moments when, uh, or, or two moments when I think uh, when former uh, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson mentioned the Monroe Doctrine on a trip yes. to Latin America. Uh, <laughs> I mean, this this is like this is I think kind of unwise i mean this is like a uh you know a former uh turkish president uh, a turkish president coming to to austria and sort of invoking the siege of vienna and saying you know this may be this is this was quite a good thing you know so people people are you know have, have this very i mean in 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 the monroe doctrine is something much more decent uh, uh, so, so uh, this is something that people see, you know, that that sort of gratuitous and sort of unnecessary, of course, seized upon intensely by nationalist uh, voices. And even though 
you know, a more sort of pragmatic politicians know that this doesn't really mean that much. It does increase the cost of cooperating with the United States. Uh, and there's an interesting example of uh, a, a space corporation that was proposed and that you know actually was agreed upon between governments of the United States and Brazil uh, 18 years back that would have allowed the U.S. to use uh, a space launching site uh, in Brazil, which is closer to the equator, uh, mm-hmm. to uh, and 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 that would have been quite interesting. It would have uh, uh, generated economic benefits to Brazil, allowed Brazil to uh, develop uh, a knowledge in this very important area. Microsatellites now very important, GPS uh, right. and all these kinds of areas. And this was basically shut down because this was uh, being characterized as a threat to Brazil's sovereignty. I, uh, now we will never know the the uh, you know if that would have worked if if the if the agreement had been with China. But I'm quite sure that this wouldn't really have uh, caused a lot of anxiety or, or couldn't have been seized upon by national voices. Uh, so I think yes, there is a that. Uh, and I think, of course, uh, there, there is the, the the mere mention of a you know military involvement in Venezuela uh, has uh, yeah. and a, yeah. has a, I, I actually I, I think has been a gift to Maduro and has forced uh, governments across the region to align with the Venezuelan government and knowing how, what really go, uh, presidents in many countries, most countries in South America, think about Venezuela. I mean, that, that it would take a statement like that to unite sort of Macri and Maduro, uh, uh, you know. And so I think this has a real cost, and a lot of people may say, well, this is just sort of uh, uh, mere rhetoric. Uh, but I think in that sense, uh, China also benefits from very clumsy uh, U.S. Uh, rhetoric and a perceived uh, sort of lack of strategy and a perceived mm-hmm. risk uh, that the United States articulates. Well, uh, I really want to thank you all for, for taking this time to not only, you know, kind of help us understand the summit of the Americas and the regional context, but giving us real insight into the dynamics of uh, the politics of a number of the countries in the region. It's really very, very helpful, and I really want to thank you for your, uh, your, your time and, and your, your views on this. Thank you very much. Thank you for uh, having me.